ميس جد يعني هي انا عم بحكي معك It was truly incredible. We were singing and crying. I do not know what else to say, but those weeks, those months, were some of the best days of my life. You know, the regime had no control. And for the first time, everyone spoke their minds out loud without fear. You mentioned that you were singing. What were the songs? We would sing the revolution songs, Mace. Do you remember any favorites of yours? Paradise, paradise, paradise. The city of Raqqa is celebrating. For the first time in their lives, its citizens can walk in the streets expressing how they really feel about the country they live in and the ruling Assad family. They can sing and call out loud for freedom and democracy, something that mere days ago would have meant risking their lives. It was an indescribable joy. You could walk freely without fear of a security agent coming at you from behind or a car stopping next to you and forcing you into it. I cannot find the words to express the feeling. These were the moments that I had been imprisoned for. The moments I had been dreaming of experiencing in real life. The people of Raqqa can do this because in early March 2013, a group of opposition forces made up of the Free Syrian Army and various Islamist groups freed the city from the control of the Syrian regime. That means that President Assad is no longer in control. That means no more security branches, no more intelligence officers, and no more Khaled al-Halabi. But while the heads of the other intelligence branches are known to have either been captured by the opposition or helicoptered out of Raqqa and back to the safety of Damascus, the capital, head of state security branch 335, Khaled al-Halabi, is nowhere to be found. Welcome to the Syria Trials, the disappearing general. I'm your host Fritz Streif and this is episode 4, Escape from Raqqa. Please be aware that this episode contains descriptions of violence and torture. Please take care while listening. So where had Halabi disappeared to? Based on the information I have, there was a plan made with Khaled al-Halabi that he would defect from his position and leave the city. As these rebel forces encroached on Raqqa, those that worked for the regime, like Halabi, were forced to consider their options, and quickly. But luckily for him, it appears that there were people in Raqqa who thought well of Halabi. Despite the fact that he was the head of general intelligence, people like Rashid Satouf, the Communist Labour Party member. Rashid had met Halabi in person at his office at State Security Branch 335 and thought of Halabi as a decent and polite man. Based on what I know, many members of the community in Raqqa had a positive impression of Khaled al-Halabi. He had relationships with public figures, as well as social relationships. No one held a grudge against him or viewed him in a really negative light. That's why many social figures and people from the opposition were ready to help him escape. It seems that Halabi, still relatively new to a city that was built on the foundations of deep tribal affiliations, 
would benefit from the kindness of the people of Raqqa. Remember what lab technician and activist Muhammad said? There is a saying that we love strangers, and when a stranger comes to Raqqa, they receive a warm welcome and support from the people. Activist Abdallah was in Raqqa when the regime lost control of the city. When the FCA and the Ahrar Sham started to enter the city, they went to the, the branches, they surround the branches. The FSA being the Free Syrian Army. Ahrar al-Sham was one of the Islamist brigades that banded together with the FSA and took over Raqqa. When the opposition's armed factions entered the city, the security committee was gathered in the governorate building. The security committee comprised the heads of the four intelligence directorates, plus a representative from the governor's office and the local head of the Ba'ath Party, Syria's only political party. Since the uprising began in 2011, nearly two years earlier, A key task of the committee was to decide how they would carry out their orders from Damascus to arrest and torture peaceful demonstrators. Now, the committee were the ones being targeted. But as the rebels entered Raqqa and the committee gathered, there was a notable absence. Khalid al-Halabi didn't join them. His defection had already been planned. There were specific arrangements made within the branch. These arrangements made it necessary for Halabi to remain in the city until the last few hours. He was then smuggled out, thanks to the cooperation of certain figures from Araka. I will not say the names of the people who knew the details of his escape. Halabi's friends in the Raqqa community had links with the opposition forces that were taking over the city now. Khaled al-Halabi, he went to a family that he knows in Raqqa. In this family, they have some member at the FSA. As I remember, he went with his weapon. He sat at the family and he bought his gun. I know the family, I know everything about the story. And I think this is wrong decision by the family to help. But the family, they said... If anyone rang our door as a tribal thing and he asked for help, we will help. But I'm against this because I see Khaled Habi as a criminal. I've known about and even worked on the Halabi case for years, and I still can't get my head around why Halabi decided to escape Raqqa rather than retreating with his fellow intelligence officers back to the relative safety of Damascus. Maybe he thought he'd be punished for losing Raqqa to the rebels. Maybe he'd got fed up with his job and thought that now was as good a time as any to stop working for the regime. But it's also possible that as the rebels approached, Halabi had seen the inevitable coming. Kinan Khadesh is a Syrian writer and journalist. A member of the Jews' religious minority, he is from the same town as Halabi, Suweda, in the south of the country. The city was kind of full. It was a matter of time. Maybe he gave it a push, but it wouldn't have uh, survived more than six months. If you look from a more neutral perspective, I think him surrendering Iraq avoided a bloodshed. I was in his place and his shoes in 2013. I would have done the same. As the head of the state security branch for the entire Raqqa governorate, an area run by military and intelligence generals like himself, Halabi held a lot of power. And if, as Rashid says, his escape had been planned before the rebels actually took the city, and if, as Kanan says, he wanted to avoid bloodshed, 
Could Halabi have essentially handed over the keys of the city to the opposition forces, saving his own skin in the process? So I spoke with this officer in the Free Syrian Army. I'm not uh, allowed to say his name, but I just uh, give him a call. Do you know the guy? Yes, I knew him. And when did you hear first about him? He said, when I first deserted and I was uh, in Deir Zorwich, a city near Raqqa, I was hearing that there is an officer from Sweden that was helping the rebels. Proceeded to say, like, he was actually a good person, a nice person, who had helped a lot of people. But he also decided to stay in the shadows. But Abdallah thinks that Halabi arranged a deal with opposition forces, simply because he hadn't managed to escape with the other regime officials in time. I think Khaled al-Halabi didn't succeed to reach the 17th Brigade at that time. The 17th Brigade being the division of the Syrian Arab Army, so the regime's army, that controlled the northeast of Syria. It was there that many of Halabi's colleagues escaped to, as the regime lost control of the city. If he reached it, we will see him at the Assad regime now, continuing his work. Despite the deep mistrust of anyone working for the intelligence services, Rashid has an idea why the opposition would have decided to help Halabi escape. He was treated as someone who was defecting from the regime and not running away from the city. At this point, any defection was welcomed. If an officer defected from an important position, he was welcomed by the opposition. Abdallah sees things very differently. He doesn't consider what Halabi did as a defection. He didn't join. He didn't join the revolution. And he didn't support the revolution. He just ran away because he hasn't other choice at that time. Neither does his fellow activist, the lab technician Mohammed, who had been held at Halabi's branch in 2011. He supposedly defected from the regime. But when did he defect? The moment the Free Syrian Army entered the city. This doesn't make him a defector. He served the regime until the very end. After the Free Army has arrived, what am I defecting from, brother? It's over for me. I cannot do anything anymore. However he had done it, Halabi had managed to escape from Raqqa. But where did he go once he had made it out of the city? We received information that Khalid al-Halabi had reached Tal al-Abyad. Tal al-Abyad is a two-hour drive from Raqqa. It's a town right on the Syrian border with Turkey, the closest gateway into the country from Raqqa. Was he planning on escaping Syria altogether? So he had some connections that helped him get out. Yes. You know when he got out? In March. When the FSA took control of the city, he spent like some days there, then he went to Turkey. He was smuggled out northwards to Turkey. So Halabi left Syria, leaving behind his family and a very high-ranking position within the regime. He seems to have decided that whatever fate had in store for him if he stayed in Syria was not worth the risk. He had decided, instead, to venture into the complete unknown. Despite his whereabouts being unaccounted for, the people of Raqqa were not going to let one missing general stop them from celebrating their new freedom. For the people who believe in the Syrian revolution, I think this is the most beautiful time in my life. Why? Tell me, why was it beautiful? Because there is no scare at that time. You just think about the future, how you will build. We formed local councils. 
We formed NGOs, 43 NGOs in Raqqa, 18 local councils. And you feel free, you know, there is no intelligence, no police, nothing to scare about, you know. I feel this feeling at that time. I am free. And I can imagine because this is between early March. So also you have the springtime, maybe? Exactly, exactly. And sitting on the you know, street and smoking argila with your friends. And, you know, planning about the future. You know, the Syrian flag everywhere. And the city's like looks like different. Like a flower blooming fresh. Exactly. Thayer Dandouche, a school teacher and activist, was also celebrating in Raqqa. Those days were some of the best days we ever experienced. There were so many beautiful things happening. We formed civil gatherings and brought together the sons and civilian youth of liberated Raqqa. We even cleaned the city and started painting it. As Raqqa celebrated, news of the abuses that had been occurring in Syria since the uprising had begun was starting to seep out of the country. Lama Faki had started working at the international NGO Human Rights Watch in 2011, the year the uprising had started in Syria. As the conflict in the country deepened, she traveled to southern Turkey, where thousands of Syrians had fled. So we spoke with some combination of defectors, so individuals that had themselves been members of the army or at different intelligence branches, as well as those that had been detained. We spoke to children, women, adult men, all of whom you know, described really horrific torture. People describe being held in stress positions. They describe being confined in group cells that were, were overcrowded, you know, so much so that people had to take turns sitting down or lying down. They described a device called Basat uh, which is a wooden board that a detainee would be strapped down to, and it was used to contort the detainee's body and at the same time incapacitate them so they couldn't protect themselves when they were being beaten. Electrocution, including of genitals, we documented as well cases of sexual assault and sexual violence in detention, and also just suffering from deprivation. You know, people didn't have adequate access to food, so their bodies were deteriorating in detention. They did not have decent sanitation, so there were you know diseases that were spreading in the facilities. And you know, even from from the beginning, we started receiving reports of, of death in detention as a result of the ill-treatment and and poor conditions that people were were suffering from. One word that comes to mind is ruthless. The government was really willing to do anything to eliminate the protest movement and to retain control of the country. As 2013 unfolded, Lama began conducting investigations inside Syria itself. And the liberation of Raqqa provided a rare opportunity to explore a place that had been freshly vacated by the regime. My first trip to Raqqa was in the spring of 2013, and it was shortly after Raqqa had fallen out of government control. So I traveled from from Beirut. I flew to southern Turkey, and from there we traveled down to the border. I was with a colleague, and we also had a videographer who was working with us. The three of us entered via the Tel Aviv crossing. 
the same crossing that Halaby had traveled through in the other direction, mere weeks earlier. The Human Rights Watch team arrived in the newly liberated Raqqa, a city that was still finding its feet. It wasn't a planned part of the trip, but once we were in Raqqa, we passed by a couple of the intelligence facilities. Seeing it and asking, you know, who was in charge of it, could we enter? And when we were told yes, we decided that, you know, of course we would have to, to go and see. And again, because I spent so much time documenting abuses in the detention context, I was really interested to see for myself, you know, what these facilities look like and to see what more we might learn or understand about how this apparatus of, of torture and arbitrary detention was running. The branch Lama and her team had come across was State Security Branch 335, Halabi's branch. It was located on a main road next to a roundabout. Lama was struck by just how normal the branch looked from the outside, just like a regular office building. From the outside, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, appreciate what the structure was, except for the name that was on the awning outside of the building. It was the first time I saw an intelligence branch, and when we entered, it was disarray. I remember, you know, somebody kind of guarding it from the outside who was sort of half sleeping in his chair. You just walk in and there are reams of paper strewn across the floor, different files of individuals. There were empty weapons crates, there was, you know, graffiti on the walls, you know, trash, and things upturned. It made it clear that somebody had made a hasty exit. And I was able to go as well and see what were clearly cells, places that people had been held, group cells as well as solitary confinement cells. These cells would have been where activists like Mohammed and Thayer were held. One of the group cells that I entered had a basalt torture device in it. And it was a device that, you know, when people had been describing it to me, it's sort of hard to imagine, you know, they would describe it as like a, a crucifix that you would be tied to and it would bend in the middle. And, and it was just lying there in the middle of the room, just discarded. It brought a reality to the abuse, just seeing, seeing the device there. You could see graffiti on the walls. People had written, you know, their names or, or messages. It all was just, you know, remnants just revealing what had transpired. For Lama, being inside an intelligence branch for the first time brought into stark reality the stories that she'd heard from the Syrians who had fled the country. And it also presented an opportunity. An opportunity to collect evidence of the crimes that had occurred inside branch 335. The facilities were not secured, so I don't know who had access between the time the government left and when we visited. But one of the things that we were trying to press for in our work around these facilities was that the information inside be secured. This huge trove of documents spread all over the branch could hold damning evidence of what had gone on under Halaby's command. But there was just too much inside Halaby's branch to look through all the files properly and catalog them correctly. We were very reticent to take materials out of the branch. Our purpose was to try and encourage that there be an effort to try to secure it through local officials and some assistance to try to collect uh, the documentary evidence that was there. For example, like one of the documents that we saw was like a list of everybody that lived in the city that had a college education. 
and by virtue of being college educated is somehow we're on the radar of, of the intelligence branch. We would just see profiles of different individuals written up. And in the state security facility, you know, we entered the office of the Brigadier General who headed up the branch and we saw his sort of business cards strewn across the floor. The name of the Brigadier General, Khalid al-Halabi, and, you know, his title, his phone number. You know, I have my business cards also sort of stacked up in my desk. It was just like this. You know, you could tell that this had been his office. It was one of these, you know, just typical office of a mid-level employee in a government building with the, the large desk and bookcases behind and his business cards. For the moment, whatever evidence there was of what had gone on inside Branch 335 would stay there, including any evidence pertaining to Halabi himself. Outside the branch, the citizens of Raqqa were still full of positivity for their new future. But with no one fully in control, Lama felt an increasing unease. It felt hopeful, it also felt lawless. You know, there was not a clear authority that was in place. There were different armed groups running around with different motivations, different backers. People were uncertain about what was going to come next. The Assad regime might not have put up much of a fight when the rebels first took the city of Raqqa, but they were really flexing their muscles now. As the regime started to bomb the city, I think, uh, as I remember, the first day of opening the schools, the Assad regime target the schools they target by war blend, and they killed a lot of kids. The regime had started to enlist the help of its allies too. Charles Lister works at the Middle East Institute, an NGO based in Washington, D.C. Iran's decision to intervene quite aggressively in the spring of 2013, that was a big turning point then. That showed really for the first time that the regime had a strategic partner or a strategic ally in the region that was willing to go all in to defend the regime's survival. And that, of course, also coalesced with the beginning of the use of chemical weapons. I think that that period of time following the international community's failure to back up its red line on the use of chemical weapons, you know, had a fairly consequential effect on the shape of the armed opposition in Syria. This was Obama's infamous red line on what could lead him to use military force in Syria. He had said, if we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons being moved around or utilized... But there was no military response from the U.S. or its allies after the Syrian regime used chemical weapons on a number of occasions, including the attack in Istanbul in August 2013. More than a thousand civilians, including babies and the elderly, were killed that day. The perception that the West in particular had betrayed the revolution, had betrayed the opposition cause by not following through on its red line, was a boon to Islamists and jihadists alike. Groups on the more extreme end of the spectrum gained the advantage. The tide was turning as another force entered the war in Syria. The beautiful days of freedom in Raqqa were about to come to an end. You'll remember that the forces that took Raqqa from regime control were not just the Free Syrian Army. In order to be able to take the city successfully, the FSA had joined with Islamist brigades Jabhat al-Nusra and Akhrar al-Sham. 
But it was another Islamist group who was about to dramatically change Syria and the lives of the people of Raqqa, one that had been tied to Jabhat al-Nusra. ISIS, the so-called Islamic State, also known as Daesh. ISIS and its leadership, through Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, vehemently opposed Jabhat al-Nusra's more subtle, more pragmatic approach to dealing with the revolution in Syria. ISIS wanted its presence in Syria to be like its presence in Iraq. Its presence should stand for fighting the sectarian regime, the Assad regime, and establishing areas of control solely under the rule of ISIS and its extremist interpretation of Islam, not in cooperation with the Syrian armed opposition, which ISIS viewed as apostates. So that break happened in, in 2013 and led ultimately to ISIS's brutal, brutal conquest of opposition areas, or at least its attempted conquest of opposition areas, and ultimately its establishment of control in eastern Syria. The first time I heard about ISIS, I was with friends sitting in a, in a coffee called Abel Coffee in Raqqa City. At that time, I don't know ISIS. I don't know who. They put the masks and they have heavily weapons with them. More than five cars and vehicles surround the, the Abels. I saw my friend Mohammed Musara and uh, my uncle and other friend. They were on their knees. I came and entered. I told them who you are. They told me we are FSA. I told them no, you are not, because most of the FSA people they they know us. They know the activists. I I get fight with him. I told him, you are not uh, not a Syrian, even uh, your accent. And if you are uh, a real man and strong, take off your, your, your mask. And this is the first time I heard about the state. He told me, we are the state. At that time, I shocked because when we, we said to anybody, we are the state, yani my head go to the Assad regime. This is about June 2013? Uh, yes. And when did ISIS take full control of Raqqa? I think full control, 14th of January 2014. So there are so many changes happening. From 2014, early 2014, is ISIS rule completely? What changed in terms of the daily life? We start seeing some foreigners with different accents, with different languages. Also, at the same time, we saw them like trying to force the civilians to following their roles. As example, once there was a girl walking on the street, she put cover, normal cover. And Tunisian guy, he was holding a yogurt with his hand and he threw it on, on the girl. And he said, you are you are kafir because you don't close all your face. And we saw this start to interfere on the civilians. We, we know that we're going towards it. Abdullah Al-Khalaf is a journalist who has lived in Raqqa since 2006. He hadn't been in the city when it fell, first to the combined armed opposition and then to ISIS. So when he returned to Raqqa in April 2014, he immediately noticed huge changes in the city. If you wanted to go to the market, ISIS militants would be there, watching you, looking for any mistakes you made so that they could humiliate you. 
Like if your beard was not long enough or if your attire was deemed improper according to their standards, they would berate you and lecture you on religious matters. They'd argue that by opposing them you are essentially opposing Allah and going against the divine law. They performed public executions. You would go out to the markets and come across a hanging head. Just like that. It was a terrifying time. To be honest, I tried my best to stay confined to my home. How would you compare the ISIS criminality generally to the experience before of life under the regime? How would you compare those two? They are the same. Both they kidnap, they arrest. They don't believe in democracy, both. They don't believe in change or sharing, both of them. They're killing the people. So for me, it's like the same. Nothing changed. Well, I think there's absolutely no question that on a crime-by-crime -crime basis, ISIS was a horrifically brutal, cruel terrorist organization. And that will always and forever remain the case. But we mustn't forget that statistically speaking, ISIS has been responsible over the past 12 years of Syria's crisis for, I think, two or three percent of the civilian casualties that have been caused throughout the past 12 years. And about 90 percent of those civilian casualties have been caused by the regime. And so statistically speaking, ISIS's crimes, whilst horrendous, are just vastly overshadowed by the scale of the regime's scorched earth strategy. You know, the regime didn't come up with its Assad or we burn the country motto for nothing. They genuinely believed it at the time and they have genuinely practiced it ever since. Although I think tragically what we've seen is Assad and we burn the country. The war in Syria was getting more intense and more brutal by the day. The regime was attacking hospitals and schools with barrel bombs, large barrel-shaped metal containers filled with explosives and sometimes shrapnel. Syria's second largest city and economic hub, Aleppo, was under siege by regime troops. Chemical weapons had been and were continuing to be used against civilians. And after making Raqqa the capital of their so-called caliphate, as 2014 progressed, ISIS was attempting to spread its extreme Islamist rule into more parts of Syria. Khaled al-Halabi had left all of this behind, crossing at the Tal al-Abyad gateway into Turkey in spring 2013. Nearly a year had gone by. Where was he now? The Syria Trials, The Disappearing General, is hosted by me, Fritz Streif. You can find us on socials at 75podcasts or at our website, 75podcasts.org, where you can listen to season one of our series as well as our sister series in Arabic. Please do leave a comment or review for us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you usually listen. It'll help us reach more listeners and interested parties. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>